Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. We're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're listening. I first want to say that I'm glad to be back. Certainly, we enjoyed our little trip away on our fall break, and I know that you always enjoy Brother Larry being here with you, but certainly we missed each and every one of you. It's strange uh, being away from you all. feels like you're stepped away from family and that you're missing out on just special smiles and hugs and handshakes and all of that, so I'm very grateful to be back. We had a wonderful time with family, but it's so good to be able to stand before you to, again and worship with you and deliver this message. And we're going to, I had originally thought I should say that we were going to finish today with Acts 27 and Acts 28, but throughout the course of preparing, Acts 27 and 28 are full of details. So we're not going to quite finish today. We're going to go through Acts 27 and Acts 28 because if we tried to do everything, time would just not allow. And so remember, as we draw our study in Acts to a close, there's this great story arc from the very beginning of how the gospel of Jesus Christ will make it throughout the known world, how it's going to start from its humble beginnings in Jerusalem, and it's going to make it all the way to Rome. Luke has been very intentional as the author of the book of Acts, making sure that that happens. And again, there's a lot that happens in the last uh, two chapters of Acts. So even though we're just taking it one chapter at a time, I'm still not going to cover everything in tremendous detail. So as always, I encourage you to go back and read the chapters in their entirety as that will complement the message, provide some context, and be very important in your own personal devotional to life. And I will say that in these last couple of stories, you're going to see a storm a shipwreck, and then on in Acts chapter 28, a very unfortunate snake bite that accompanies the last few stories as, as Paul makes his way to Rome. And when the kingdom of God is advancing, we must not be surprised to see Satan and his forces of evil step up their attacks. It's a reminder that we live in a fallen world that has been deeply marred by sin. But as such, with all of these things happening so quickly, we're joining an event already in action. Paul, a prisoner at sea, with Roman soldiers and many other prisoners, are sailing towards Rome, and they encounter what seems to be almost certain death, and we'll begin reading right in the middle of the storm. This is Acts 27, beginning in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run along or aground on the Surtees, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along, 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, who I belong to and who I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. I know that that was lengthy, but to kind of get the whole context of what's happening here, we needed to read all of those verses. So what's happening? Paul is a prisoner aboard an Alexandrian ship on its way to Italy. This was a grain freighter, things like wheat, and it was taking grain that had been grown in Egypt all the way to Italy. And this typical freighter of that period was about 140 feet long and 36 feet wide. It had one mast with a big square sail. And when in a mind, when in your mind I say the word rudder, that's not exactly what it had on the back. Rather than a rudder, it was steered with two paddles on the back side of the ship. And it was a very sturdy ship, but it was clunky. It couldn't sail into the wind. They were impressive boats, but they were largely considered inefficient, and they were certainly not boats that would venture out onto the open sea. These ships always stayed near the land and, if you will, kind of hugged the shore, so to speak, as they traveled. And so Paul provides a warning early on in this voyage. He didn't necessarily speak prophetically, but he, he spoke as an experienced travel on the Mediterranean. He had already logged, by most estimations, around 3,500 miles on the sea. So he knew the seasons, he knew the conditions, and perhaps God had given him this supernatural wisdom. He advised them not to go on. In fact, Paul records later in his second letter to the church at Corinth that by this time he had already experienced shipwreck three times. And so he, like most everyone, knew that sailing in this particular season in this winter area was very dangerous. But, as you found out as we read through this particular section, they don't listen to Paul and they continue on their journey. And when they first continue, for a brief moment, it appeared that things might actually go well. There was a gentle wind that pushed them along. So at first... Despite the warnings, things went okay. And I have to say that I feel like that there's a metaphor for sin and disregarding God here. For a brief time, when we choose to go our own way, things may seem to go well. In fact, they may seem to even go better when we strike out on our own and disregard living for Christ and we become determined to be in charge of our own destiny. But eventually, the consequences of our actions arrive. The judgment does eventually come. And in this case, it came in the form of a great storm. And there was nothing that the crew could do to fight against this storm. We read that it was a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. Some of your Bible translations may say Euroclidon. Now, 
as I say, depending on which Bible translation, you either get Northeaster or this big kind of ominous word, Euroclidon. But in either case, it meant bad news for the sailors and ships. It was a very predictable weather event that happened because of all these convergences of different weather patterns at this time of year, which is why sailing was almost always avoided altogether during the winter months if it could be helped. And this wind was feared among the ancient sailors, and once they were in it, particularly with this type of ship, there was nothing that they could do but simply let the ship drive. And the next little bit I find somewhat humorous in the midst of all of this chaos. Luke records that they secured the skiff. You may read it. It may say they secured the boat. Now, a skiff is a light boat that was normally towed behind the primary ship, but it was taken aboard in bad weather. This ship was used to, to travel back and forth to ports, to send small groups to land, etc. So it was a very small ship. It was used as a lifeboat in the case of a shipwreck. And so now remember, Luke is a physician. He's a medical doctor. And he's the one that's writing his, this account. And when he records this particular thing, he shifts his pronouns. Instead of saying, they did this or they did that, he said, we, we secured the skiff or the boat with great difficulty. So it seems highly probable that Luke was employed to help reel this boat in, certainly not work that he was used to. So this is probably quite literal from Luke's perspective that this was very difficult. This doctor was pressed into service pulling ropes, which I'm sure that he did with great gusto, even if it was work that he wasn't quite used to. And I'll add this as a little aside here to give Luke some extra credit, that as Luke records the sea travel in these final two chapters of Acts, this is studied throughout all sorts of fields uh, when people look at the ancient world and seafaring travel to capture insight into how folks navigated the sea in the ancient world. There's a lot of very specific nautical vocabulary, particularly in the Greek that Luke uses here, to help people understand what it was like to sail during that time. And once again, it's just amazing the meticulous detail that Luke records these amazing events events under the inspiration of God. And so as this happens, the crew is now in emergency mode to save the ship. They lighten the ship. They throw the tackle overboard. These were the final things that were done to save the ship. Throwing over the cargo, throwing over the ship's equipment. And I have to say, as I was preparing this message, myself being a complete novice at sea travel, this perplexed me because I just didn't understand why they would do this. Why on earth would they throw their supplies overboard, including food and equipment, if they were trapped on the boat? Wouldn't they need that? Wouldn't they need this equipment? Wouldn't they need this food and etc.? And come to find out, as I researched this, it makes perfect sense. This was done so that the ship would be lighter and would not be as far down in the water. So as it uh, released some of its weight, it would actually sail a little bit higher on the water. Thus, it would be able to kind of confront these turbulent waters better. But even with these efforts, the ship was still driven and tossed by the wind for many, many days. And then, hopelessness sat in. The crew and the passengers gave up hope, and they believed all was lost. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Only the sun and the stars could be used to navigate the open seas, and many days in this storm drove the crew to desperation. 
There were 276 people on board, passengers, prisoners, and crew, and they have given up hope. It's a very serious thing to give up hope. And I may say that while it's easy for us to read this as a story from the comfort of our pew or couches, this had been a struggle for days and days and days. There had been no let-up in the turbulence. They were surrounded by darkness. They were seasick and famished. They could not overcome the storm. And to be fair, they had tried. They had tried so hard on their own. Every bit of their human strength had tried to navigate the ship to safer waters and to land. Every piece of knowledge in navigating the sea had been applied to overcome the situation, and none of it had proven fruitful. They had fought, they had battled, they had lost against the storm. So they gave up hope. But then Paul speaks. He says, take heart. After a long absence of food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. But now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, admittedly, at first this doesn't seem like an inspiring speech from the great apostle Paul. What's the first thing he says? You should have listened to me. Now, he wasn't wrong. They should have listened to him. And we don't have to go back but about a dozen verses to see this. He says, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will end with injury and much loss. You know, we've been conditioned to think that we shouldn't say things like, I told you so. And I'll admit, in many cases, maybe even in most cases, it isn't a great thing to say. But when God places wise people in our lives who are people of God in prayer, who speak up and give us sound counsel, it's equally wise for us to take that counsel. And when we don't, and there have been many times where I have not, it's also wise to be confronted with the consequences of our stubbornness, acknowledging our failing, repent, and then listen to the truth. And so I would imagine that Paul had had to hold that nugget within him for a long time to be able to say, I told you so. But Paul also gave them a comforting promise. He was bringing hope to these passengers and crew who had given up all hope. He wasn't just telling them that he was right. He was giving them good news. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, that was kind of a roller coaster message, one of those good news, bad news situations. And I try to imagine maybe what the facial expressions were on the faces of those who were on the ship when Paul makes that statement. Even Luke, who was recording it, I wonder what he thought. How are we going to survive if the ship is completely destroyed? That promise that no life would be lost was hard to believe if the ship was going to be lost. It was also bad news to hear that the voyage would be a complete financial loss with all of this cargo that was being thrown overboard and the whole ship would be destroyed, but they were not going to die. Then Paul tells them about an angelic visit. He says... An angel of the God whom I belong to and serve said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and God has granted you all those who sail with you. You will run aground on a certain island. So God sends this angelic messenger to bring Paul some good news. And Paul remembered that he belonged to God and that he served God and that God never forgets those who belong to him and serve him. And we must remember that as well. This doesn't mean that everything goes easy. 
for those who belong to God and serve him. Paul's present situation and calamity certainly proves that. But it does mean that God's watchful eye and active care is present even in these great calamities. Don't be afraid, the angel said. There was a reason that Paul needed to hear this. It's reasonable to assume that Paul was afraid in the storm, at least some of the time. In his strong moments, yes, Paul knew that he would make it to Rome because God had promised it. Yet in this storm, and here a literal storm, it was easy to doubt, and Paul needed the assurance. God had told Paul through the angel that all would be saved. Paul had sought God for the safety of everyone on the ship, and God had granted that protection and blessing because of the presence of the Apostle Paul, of Luke, and the other Christ followers on that ship. Now, that's interesting to me. So, Paul's in thank for just a moment of the grace of God in that moment. Because of your faithfulness, and I mean you specifically now, because of your faithfulness and your love for God, you have been and you are a blessing to others And God blesses others because of your faithful obedience. That's a great testimony to the world and to those who we encounter that are non-believers. That God will give opportunities as a result of this, and he gives Paul an opportunity here. Take heart, Paul says. Paul couldn't keep this hope to himself. And Paul believed God. And then he puts the plan into action. We must run aground on a certain island, Paul says. Now, once again, there's some mixed news here. In these circumstances, to run aground would likely be called a shipwreck. But Paul essentially says, we're going to go to this unknown island and shipwreck, but everyone's going to be on all right. And a certain island, of course, meant that God didn't tell Paul everything about what was going to happen. Paul had to trust that God knew which island they would run aground on, even if Paul didn't know. And that brings us to this last segment of the story down in Acts 27, verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. There were 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that had tied the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land." Although Paul had given these words of encouragement and God's promise of a safe passage, you might note that the storm did not immediately end. For 14 days, two additional weeks, they experienced the misery and darkness of the storm. You know, God gives us innumerable promises, but it's not a guarantee of zero problems. As is often said, God never promises that we will avoid the storms of life. 
Rather, if we look to Jesus, he does promise to bring us through the storms, even if this is only realized in eternity. And Paul appears to have taken on a leadership role in this final leg of this perilous journey. Certainly many of them at this time realized it would be wise to listen to Paul. So he tells them, you need to eat. They'd went without food for 14 days. They were in deep suspense, unquestionably seasick. Some of us, including myself, could become green and nauseated just riding in the back seat on curvy roads. So I shudder to imagine what spending weeks on a turbulent ocean would do to a, permit, a person's stomach. But they do take Paul's advice, and it almost seems like Paul holds a Lord's Supper here, a communion. The language rings of a worshipful communion, and I have a feeling for Paul, Luke, and the other Christians, it most certainly was. So they take this bread, Paul takes this bread, he gives thanks to God in the presence of all, and then they begin to eat, and they're encouraged. So even in the midst of darkness and destruction, Paul worshipped the Lord Jesus. And the crew is encouraged by this, and then they throw the remaining wheat overboard because it's now go time. So the morning breaks, and they finally spot land. They don't recognize it, but they have a plan. They're going to run the ship of ground. Desperate times have called for desperate measures here. And it's interesting because this little island that they see is an island called Malta. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, you have to zoom in quite extensively to notice this tiny little island named Malta. And if they had missed Malta, they would have went on for over 200 miles until they struck the Tunisian coast. And no one would have expected the boat or the ship to have survived for that long. So in the vastness of the ocean, God had steered the ship toward a small island, again named Malta, which was south of Italy's coast. The ship runs aground, but then the waves are breaking it up. So the only option is to jump overboard and swim or grab onto some debris and float to the island. But remember, these were prisoners, many of them. So how do you deal with prisoners? Well, to the Romans, it made sense to kill them because they thought the prisoners will try to escape and run away. And the penalty for the Roman soldier if a prisoner escaped was Death, typically, or at the very least the same punishment of the prisoner that was in their care. It was a cold and callous thing, but it was just the way it was. But Paul had found favor in the eyes of the centurion, and once again, because of Paul, all the prisoners were spared. His presence, once again, was a blessing to all who were present, once they knew it, whether they knew it or not. God's promise had not failed, and now, in a very dramatic and turbulent way, they finally were on the land. So what are some things to leave you with this moment or this morning? I'll be brief here. Paul, you may notice, was in a vicious storm that was no cause of his own. In fact, he had warned them not to sail. The Lord doesn't always deliver us from the storms of life, nor does he promise to always deliver us from the storms of life. Sometimes we'll experience severe storms, and we have no control over the situation. Things may be out of control and driven beyond any of the circumstances that we had planned. They were engulfed in darkness. Sometimes our lives find it ourselves in moments where we cannot see the light. We can't see a purpose for what we're going through. Everything seems dark around us. And like the folks on the ship, sometimes we give up hope of surviving. But the Lord was with Paul in the storm. 
He didn't deliver him from being in the storm, but he was with him in the storm, and he comforted him with the assurance that he would survive the storm. So it is with our lives that the Lord doesn't always promise deliverance from the storm. None of us are immune to the storms of life, but the Lord will be with us in the storm. And that wonderful promise that emerges from the pages of Scripture is God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And finally, Paul's work for the Lord was not over. The angel reminded Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. There are times when, because of the storms, we may think that our work for the Lord is over. We may tell ourselves, we'll never survive this one. But Paul's ministry was not over. The Lord had a purpose that Paul would give witness of Jesus Christ to the Caesar of Rome. He says that you would go to a certain island. We realized that in this moment they were not being driven aimlessly as they thought, but the Lord was with them through the storm, bringing them to an island where God was going to open a door to Paul for great ministry. We don't often see the purpose behind the storms in our lives, and it's interesting that the purpose for this miraculous survival, though through a horrendous trial, was not revealed until the next chapter that we will look at next time. You know, I prepared a large portion of this message on a balcony looking over at the magnificent Atlantic Ocean. And when we began our journey through Acts, I didn't see that coming, but it was a small and sweet reminder of these little gifts that God gives us. Life can sometimes seem vast and sparse, just like the great oceans of our world. And as far as the eyes can see, there may be no signs of refuge, light, or land. But for those who are in Christ, we can know that we're not drifting aimlessly, that God is the master of the seas and the captain of our lives. And today, if you visit the place where Paul and his fellow travelers crash-landed, you would be greeted by a sign that reads, St. Paul's Bay. You know, I sometimes wonder what Paul thinks in heaven, assuming that he's been updated on this, that one of the most challenging and turbulent seasons of his life is now memorialized with an idyllic bay named after him. But regardless, it's a testimony of how God brings those he loves through the storms of life. Thank you for giving me a hearing this morning. If you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, these stories in the Bible may seem far removed from the lives that we live daily, but we know that you've included them in your word for a divine and special purpose. You've given them for knowledge, for warnings, for courage, for comfort. And I feel certain that everyone here, everyone listening, could share a story of a storm that they found themselves in, likely through no fault of their own, a moment when life seemed dark and uncertain, and yet you brought them through the storm. You promised to never leave or forsake those who have put their trust in you. Thank you for being close. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.